Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. It's really, it's maybe a bit of an unusual week to start a new series, but I think it's, it's good because often it, this is the time in, our, in the calendar towards the end of the year, the beginning of the new year, where we start asking those, quest, those why questions. We start thinking about you know, things like, what, what, how do I want the new year to be different from this year, and why is it that I want the things that I want? And if, I don't know if those are questions that you ask. If, if not, they're, they're good ones to ask. It's always good, especially as Christians, to be asking questions about our hearts. What's really driving us? What's motivating us? Is it Jesus in the gospel, or is it something else? Um, and so we're in the series, um, uh, uh, Andrew mentioned uh, why though, this the title inspired evidently by a meme, I don't know, um, and also by Joe Burgess who unfortunately wasn't here, but he was in Glenelg this morning at the nine o'clock service and Don pointed him out twice and embarrassed him during service. Um, it, this came, he really inspired us to really ask this question of why it is that we do what we do, not simply as individuals, but also when we come together as the church. If you can sort of do a little mental experiment, picture yourself or, you know, as maybe like, so, like somebody from another place or another religious faith background or even a, a space alien, you know, if you like, coming in and watching us, observing us from a distance. Why, we, why do we do the things that we do? Why do we sing uh, together? Why do we... Um, uh, why do we pray? Why do we eat tortilla and grape juice? What, what's that about? Why do, we, why do we go down to the ocean and get people wet in their clothes? What's, like, why do we do the things that we do? Now, let me tell you a little bit why we are doing this series, why the elders of City Light, um, Glen Elg, North Adelaide, why we think this is an important thing to talk about. We're going to be, we've got about six weeks of this series, and the first reason that we're doing this is that because many of us have um, grown up in the church, and a lot of these things that we do, we do out of habit or tradition. It's just the way we've always done it, or this is what feels comfortable, rather than having a conviction that comes from the Scripture, comes from the Bible. The Bible is the, is the source or it should be the source of everything we think and everything we do when we come together as a church, and yet many of us have never really stopped to think about, myself included, why it is, what is it in the Bible that then leads us to do what we do. Um, The second reason is that some of us, and this is maybe not the majority, but some of us have had certain practices or traditions or customs kind of forced upon us And if we ever tried to ask those sort of, why do we do this, you kind of got shot down. It's just because this is what we do. This is what our denomination does. This is what we've always done. This is what the early church did. Really? How do, can you footnote that? Can I look that up on Wikipedia? No, just sit down and be quiet. So we want to really, again, look back at scripture to get this basis for why we do what we do. And the third reason, then, is that we are all subject, because we're human beings, we're subject to the tendency to let the world or the culture 
around us, including church culture, shape what we do and what we think more than the Scripture. That's, that's a constant tendency, a constant battle that we always have, and so we need to be well-equipped to be able to go back to the Scripture and say, ah, that's why we do what we do. That's why it's worth it. It, might still, it still might feel or look or seem to others a bit weird, but if we can justify what we're doing and we can see it in the Scripture, then we can be confident that this is a practice that's been handed down to us for our good, for our joy, and for God's glory. So that's where we're going tonight, with, and that's where we're going with this Why Though series. And so before I get into our particular topic for tonight, why don't I pray, and then we'll go from there. Lord, thank you that we can be here tonight. Thank you for this just glorious weather on this last day of the year, Lord. We, we come and acknowledge that for some of us this year has been quite challenging, that we've faced afflictions and trials of, of many kinds. For others of us, we've, this has been a year of new beginnings and, and joys, Lord, and regardless of our circumstances, Father, may we come now before your word. May we sit under your word, and may you use your word to teach our hearts, to shape our hearts, to form us into the very image of your Son, Jesus, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would do that now for your glory and your namesake. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. The topic, the particular why question that we're going to start off with tonight is the uh, question of baptism. Uh, baptism being that ritual that uh, folks undergo as they begin the Christian journey, as they begin their Christian life. But why do we do it? Why do we, why do we baptize people? We're going to be spending most of our time tonight in one particular text in Colossians, Colossians chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, you can, op- you can flip over to Colossians chapter 2, um, and I'll read it in a moment. But before I read it, I want to start off with a list of, it's a kind of a random list of things that Christians might say when they're asked the question of why it is they got baptized. So if I was to ask you, or if I was to ask just any Christian person, why, why did you get baptized, or why, why do you want to get baptized, or why do you think so-and-so should get baptized? And here are some of the answers that are fairly common to that question. Number one, because Jesus commanded everyone to be baptized. Number one, because Jesus commanded everyone to be baptized. Well, actually, he commanded his disciples to baptize people. And so we, there's the inference, the, the assumption that he wanted everyone to be baptized. And essentially, he did expect all those who would believe the good news to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's in the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. That's a, and really, if, if that's true, that Jesus expects all of his followers, all of his Christians to be baptized, then that should be reason enough. It, it should compel us. And yet, because, again, like I said before, we all have the tendency to be shaped, more shaped by the world and culture around us than by the Word of God, somehow that, it's not as compelling as it might be just to say, well, because the Bible says so or because Jesus says so, we should get baptized. So 
And, and if the Bible says something more than that, it's more than just a simple command, then we should look at it and we should think about it. Why did he command his followers to be baptized? Thankfully, the earliest followers of Jesus had a lot to say about it, and it's recorded for us in Scripture. Number two, the second thing people might say when you ask them, why should you get baptized or why did you get baptized? They might say, well, it's because my church or my family or my denomination requires it. It says I have to. Uh, and this is true in particular if you grow up in a local church that um, really emphasizes a particular doctrine of baptism, whether it be, um, you know, very, uh, you know, uh, Anabaptist believer's baptism or infant baptism, if that is a, a real hallmark of your church, your denomination, there's a very good chance that you were told at a young age, you have to be baptized or, you're, or you were baptized when you were a baby. And it's just part of the culture and the requirements of the church. Some churches, such as the Roman Catholic Church, teach that you cannot be a saved Christian, really, in good standing without having undergone the sacrament, as they call it, of baptism. And there's, there is a biblical historical precedent for this. You can go back to the book of Acts. Listen to Peter. His very first sermons found in Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and 39. And he has just preached, a, he's just told the crowds, the, the Jewish audience who's listening to him, saying that you are responsible for the death of Jesus. You're responsible for the death of Jesus, and they say, what must we do? And this is what he says. Verse 38, he says, repent, turn, and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call. You go keep on reading through the book of Acts, you look through church history, you will not find an example of someone who professes a belief in Christ, a genuine belief in Jesus as Lord and Savior that was not then baptized. Sometimes in the book of Acts, it happened immediately upon their confession. As, the, as time went on, that period of time between the confession and baptism would get longer as there were, the church was trying to deal with this question of false believers or people were coming into the church for, for bad reasons. So they, were wanting, they would put them through a process of education called catechism that you would go through, and then after you complete that, then you would get baptized. But there were no, there, I can't find an example of a particular church or a group of Christians who did not then baptize new converts, new believers. And it's in the, so it's in the Bible. The Holy Spirit inspired Peter to tell that original audience there on the day of Pentecost, be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. And it's there, if Peter says it's in the Bible, we know this is the word of God coming to us, saying, be baptized. However, it still doesn't get to that why question. Why did God require? Why does God require this of us? So the third thing people might say, if you ask them why it is that you should be baptized, they might say, because, and, I, and this one is probably the one I hear the most today. Um, people might say, because I, I want to get baptized, or I should get baptized because I love Jesus, and I want to let everybody know how much I love Jesus. I want to show the world how much I love Jesus, and that's why I should get baptized. I've heard that 
basic thing said in testimony after testimony after testimony of people getting baptized. Now, there's nothing wrong with telling the world you love Jesus. Nothing wrong with that at all. But I wonder, I'm just wondering if maybe plain words, just saying, I love Jesus, is more effective than standing in the middle of the bay with wet clothes on saying, hey, I love Jesus. I mean, it still doesn't, like, why the water? Why the dunking? What's the significance behind that? What's the meaning of that? Why baptism? So I said we'd be in Colossians chapter 2. So if you've got that, just turn there with me. Colossians chapter 2, we're going to be in verse 6 to 15. Now, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Um, Yeah, I'll just read from verse 6. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world, rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you've been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands, by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ, when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Now, let me ask this question first. What is it that Paul, this is, these are the words of Paul, okay? So we we're talking about Peter, now Paul, another early Christian leader and teacher. What is it that he wanted his hearers, his original hearers, to do? Why is he writing this? Well, in verse 6, he kind of makes it clear. He's writing to believers, people who have received Christ as Lord. He wants them to keep going. He, he's picturing them as running a race. He wants them to continue, to keep running. Don't quit. Continue to live in him. Then verse 7 being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. He wants them to grow strong, just as you were taught, overflowing with gratitude. Just picture this, somebody overflowing with gratitude, you know, in in worship, in praise. This is a person that's full of thankfulness and joy. That's what he wants for the Colossian church. That's what he wants for each of you. If you're a Christian, That is what the Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to say these things, that's what God wants for you. He wants you to be, to grow strong. He wants you to be overflowing with gratitude, joy. He wants you to be happy in the Lord. So that's his pastoral aim. That's what he wants us to do. And then in verse eight, there is a warning. He's saying he raises the possibility that there are some Christians that instead of growing strong, instead of overflowing with gratitude and joy, there is an alternative reality, and that is Christians who are taken 
captive, who are made slaves again to what he calls empty or counterfeit philosophy, false teaching, false religion. He says, if you want to be a strong, if you want to be strong and happy as a Christian, then here is heeding, you've got to heed Paul's advice. He says, stick to what you were taught from the beginning. Stick to the original gospel that Paul had taught. Don't deviate off the path and follow strange teachings or new teachings that take you away from the gospel of Jesus, dead, buried, crucified, or sorry, crucified, buried, and risen for the forgiveness of sins. Be careful to avoid counterfeit gospels based on human wisdom. That was what was happening in the Colossian church, and it happens in churches and in denominations today. And so I want to say with Paul, if you want to be strong and happy, then stick with the gospel of Jesus as proclaimed and preached in the Bible. That's Paul's pastoral aim. That's our pastoral aim for you. And that raises the question, how do we do this? How do we stick with the original gospel? How do we avoid being taken captive by other counterfeit gospels? I'm glad you asked. Because that's where Paul's going. You're running this race, and picture this, somebody coming along from the side and literally grabbing you, or getting a rope and just you know, tying up your ankle and tripping you up. That's the image that he's trying to paint. Say, don't let that happen. What is it that God gives you to keep that from happening in your life? The gospel does not come to us. It doesn't come to you in a vacuum. The gospel comes to us communicated through means. Someone told you the gospel, or someone gave you a Bible. Someone preached to you. God used some means to let you know and receive and understand the gospel. He gave you uh, ability to hear and understand language and respond. These are the means that God employed so that you would come to believe Jesus and know Jesus and know the joy that comes from knowing Jesus. Just as God uses means like this for you to believe, he also uses means to keep you believing. He uses means to keep us believing. For example, he gives us the Bible. We have, most of us can read, most of us own a copy of the Bible, either on paper or a digital one, and you have access to read it daily. He gives us, he gives you his ear. Think of this, the God of the universe who spoke everything into existence, he gives you his ear. You can come to him at any point as your heavenly father and ask him for what you need. He gives you the ability to take the worry, the weight, the anxiety, the frustrations that you experience and literally just throw them at his feet. He gives you a family he gives you brothers and sisters, says you're not alone. You're doing this together. You're running this race together, a whole cloud of witnesses from history and, and on to today. And he gives us signs that remind us of what has transpired in Christ that has made a, such a huge difference in our in our 
heart's desire and in our eternal destiny. Baptism, communion, which we'll celebrate later, marriage, all of these things point us back, or they should, if they're communicated well and facilitated well, point us back to the beautiful truth of the gospel. And these are the very things that keep us in line with the gospel, keep us running the race that's marked out for us, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We can't do that in our own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, through means such as these, our eyes don't turn from the left to the left or to the right. So Paul here in Colossians 2 He's writing to a church that he sees and is concerned that they're beginning to drift and be pulled away. They're beginning to get tripped up in their race by this false teaching. We don't know exactly what sort of false teaching they were dealing with. People of, you know, scholars debate, was it Gnosticism, was it something else? We don't really know, and it doesn't really matter. The point is, they were getting tripped up by false teaching, and Paul comes in and says, this is how you deal with it. I'm going to point you back to something really significant. I'm going to remind you of your baptism. I'm going to remind you of your baptism, and that's what he does. So there's some pretty dense theology in this, in this and so we're going to unpack it, starting verse 9 and 10 from Colossians 2. Verse 9, for remember, brothers, our labor until... Oh, sorry, I am in the wrong book. That flipped over. Try that one again. Sorry. Ah, oh, that's better. For in him, that's in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Now, what does that mean? We have just finished this week celebrating the incarnation, the incarnation where God became a man in Jesus Christ. That's what this verse is referring to. That's what Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the wise men were celebrating, that here in this little baby in a manger was a human being, a human baby, who was Fully God and fully human. Fully God and fully human. That is the, what we celebrate at Christmas. And that's over and over. Paul repeats that in Colossians. In Colossians 1:19, if you flip back to that, he says the very same thing. He says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus. God the Son, Jesus, is fully God, fully man, united, joined in the body of Jesus forever. Jesus today it still exists in a body. He is not in a, you know, in a spirit. He hasn't somehow escaped and thrown off the body. He's still, he ascended to the Father in a human body. He is still fully man and fully God today and forever. And then Paul says in verse 10, and you, you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. Just as, and you think of this, the whole of God 
is united with man in Jesus. So now Paul says, you have been joined, united, filled, they all mean the same thing, in, within him or with him. You, think about this. You have been filled with the God who fills the universe. You have been united, joined with Christ. And he says there's nothing, there's no power, ruler, authority, nothing that's higher, nothing that's greater, and you've been united with him. Why, you, you don't have to go anywhere else. Any need that you have, any, any desire that you want fulfilled, there's, there's no satisfaction greater or better than what you have in Christ. Paul then keeps unpacking our un- what we call our union with Christ in verse 11 and following. He says, you have been circumcised in Christ. What does that mean? Obviously, it's not talking about a literal circumcision. Circumcision was in the Old Testament, for the people of God, it was the sign that you were now a part of the community. So if you were male, eight days old, or if you were a foreign male who wanted to come in and be a part of the community, circumcision, that was the entrance ticket. But Paul here says you were, you, and none of us are, I don't think any of us are Jewish, but you've been circumcised in Christ. What does he mean? Circumcision here, he's using it as a metaphor. It's a physical sign of a spiritual reality. It's a visible outward depiction of something that's invisible and inward. And verse 12 clears that up, I think, for us that are not Jewish, we're Gentiles. Paul says here, he says, you were circumcised when you were buried with Jesus in baptism. Paul is not here referring to a literal circumcision, just like he's not referring to your literal burial. I don't think any of you have actually been buried. Rather, when you were converted, when you believed the gospel of Jesus, the word of Christ, when it came to you and you believed, you received at that moment the forgiveness of sins and future hope, and at that moment, you were joined with Christ. You were united with Jesus. He was literally circumcised. He was literally crucified. And yet Paul in Galatians 2 says, I have been, what, crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So we've been circumcised with Christ. We've been crucified with Christ. We've been buried with Christ in baptism, and we've been raised with Christ to new life. We are united with Christ. And what is the visible symbol that depicts this union? It's baptism. It proclaims and celebrates all these very deep theological truths in one beautiful picture. 
Baptism, you see, has essentially replaced, for God's people, has replaced circumcision as the sign marking a person's entrance into the covenant community called the church. Whereas circumcision was only available to males, baptism is available to everyone. And there's one other key difference. One other key difference between baptism and circumcision. Every male born in the community of the Jewish community, the Israelite community, was circumcised by law. There was no option to not be. It was against the law to not be. If you look at Paul's language very carefully in verse 12, we see this. He says, you were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God. Under the new covenant, the agreement between God and his people, that's us, you and I, we're united with Christ, symbolized by our baptism, not by law, but through faith in the working of God. Through faith. These two words help us to avoid, I think, two mistakes when it comes to baptism. I'm just going to say up front that not all Christians will agree with what I'm about to say. So that's okay. If you find yourself disagreeing with me, that's all right. I am coming, I'm giving you the um, conviction that is my own as well as the conviction of, of City Light, the elders of City Light Church. So I understand that if we can talk about this later. But mistake number one is the, is the belief that held by some that baptism itself saves you. Baptism saves you. And my short response to this is, no, it, it doesn't. We are saved by faith alone. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism has no power in and of itself. It does not work in and of itself. That is what Roman Catholics will believe. We do not believe that. We don't believe that it saves you in and of itself. If you get baptized, if you go through the ceremony, the ritual of baptism, and you don't actually believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, then in our view, all you've done is gotten wet in front of a bunch of people. Baptism operates through faith. Now, there's one verse in the Bible, one, that's often used to sort of counter that, and it's found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, and we find this. Baptism, which corresponds to this, and the, this, he's just talked about Noah and his family being saved in the flood, in the ark, if you know that story. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, and then there's a, a bracket, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, here's my sort of interpretation of that verse. Peter here is not saying that baptism by itself or that water by itself has some sort of magical property that it can cleanse your sins in and of itself. In the brackets there, he says it's not the physical act of washing that saves you. Rather, he says it's the inward heart appeal of of the heart, of the conscience that's directed toward God. 
It is this inward appeal of the conscience. It's this faith that causes a person to be joined to Christ and thus saved from death along with Christ. So that's mistake number one, thinking that baptism saves you. Mistake number two is more common in Protestant circles, which is that baptism is mainly about joining the church. Baptism is mainly connected or associated with joining the church. Um, Most churches and denominations, for example, that baptize infants, that baptize babies, why they do that is because they see a strong connection between circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism now, and they see a continuity between the two. Just like babies were male babies were circumcised to be a part of the covenant community in Israel. Babies now, male and female babies are baptized to join into the covenant community that is the church, and it's required. But as we've seen already, baptism is not primarily about joining the church. It's not primarily about joining the church. It is about joining with Christ through faith. It's about dying with Him putting off the old sinful self, being buried with him in the water, and then raised to new life with him. Every new believer is joined with all other believers in church, but you're first joined as an individual. You're first joined as an individual through faith that is individually exercised. Do you see the difference there? So, Let's talk about who should be baptized. And again, like I said, this is our view as, uh, at City Light. We understand that many of our family here have come from a whole variety of church backgrounds. Many of you would have been baptized or christened as, a, as babies. I was, grew up in a Methodist church. Um, however, as in this church, we believe and practice what we call believer's baptism. Believer's baptism, we believe, is an outward sign where individuals point through their baptism toward the reality that they have already been saved through faith in Jesus. So if anyone wants to be baptized under the oversight of elders of this church, then they have to be a person who's old enough to have given a believable testimony or a believable sort of evidence that they, are in fa- that they do in fact believe that they've received forgiveness of sins. There is no arbitrary minimum age. It's just that their profession must be credible. So if, you know, if a five or a six-year-old child can give a credible sort of statement of the gospel and belief in Jesus as Lord, then that we consider credible. There is a, we don't have a sort of an arbitrary minimum age. Um, and so we, you know, we go with Romans 10, 13, which says that anyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Also, and I'll add this, is that just in case you're wondering, we don't have a requirement that if you were, like if you were baptized as a baby and that yet as an adult, you've given a credible profession of faith, we don't require people to be rebaptized as a church. So that's where we are on, on, as a church in baptism. But let's get back to our question for, t- for today, which is why? Why baptism? I'm going to give you three sort of reasons, three whys. Why number one? 
in order to publicly appeal to God to save a person through faith in Jesus. In order to publicly appeal to God to save a person through faith in Jesus. That's reason, that's why number one. And then why number two, we baptize in order to visibly display for the church a person's joining or union with Christ in death, burial, and new life. In order to visibly display for the church a person's joining with Christ in death, burial, and new life. There's a third why. A third why. But before I say it, I want to look at the last three verses of Colossians, of the passage there, verses 13 to 15. Verse 13 is a classic before and after passage. Paul has a lot of, before. you were once this, now you're this, before you were this, now you're this. That's what we have in verse 13. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. He again refers to the metaphor of circumcision. He talks about before you were uncircumcised in your flesh. Again, it's a metaphor of the sinful nature that you were enslaved by, um, and now that has been put off. It's been done away with. It's this metaphor here. Um, it's this, paints this picture of our sin being removed, of our cleansing. And then in verse 14, not only is our sin cleansed, but the very record of our sin is canceled. The debt is canceled. The record is forgotten. It's erased. It's nailed to the cross. In verse 15, again, the setting here is when a person becomes a new believer and their sins are forgiven, they're united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. At that moment, we witness and proclaim, again, God's total defeat of the powers of darkness, his total victory over Satan and all the forces of evil. Every single time a new believer comes into the church, into the kingdom, that victory is proclaimed, and that's what we do in baptism. Every time a sinner turns from sin to faith in Christ, it is an opportunity for us in the church to celebrate and be reminded that the gospel is more powerful than death. The gospel is more powerful than Satan and all of the forces of evil. So that we take, the, and we, we take this former rebel, this former dead person, and we bury them in the water, and they don't stay there. We raise them up saying, death, where is your victory? Because that dead person has come up out of the water, and they are alive. They are made alive with Christ forever. This is now a child of God, completely rescued, completely joined with Christ. Why do we baptize? Here's why number three. In order to joyfully celebrate the gospel, which then becomes the means of your endurance. How do you keep running the race? How do you keep on the path of the gospel? You celebrate the gospel. Again, again, you remember it, you celebrate it, you proclaim it over and over again. That's what keeps you on the track. Now, we might, um, I wanted to read you something from Martin Luther, who he and I would have some disagreements on the topic of infant baptism, but 
Um, I think he's one in church history who probably understood the whys of baptism, maybe better than any other figure that I'm aware of from church history. And here's, he, he, he says this in his uh, larger catechism, which again was what they would teach new believers who were preparing for baptism. He says this, he says, baptism is not a work that we do. It is not a work that we do, but a treasure that God gives us and faith grasps. In baptism, therefore, every Christian has enough to study and practice all of his or her life. Thus, we must regard baptism and put it to use in such a way that we may draw strength and comfort from it when our sins or conscience oppress us and say, but I am baptized. And if I have been baptized, I have the promise that I shall be saved and have eternal life both in soul and body. So why do we baptize believers in Jesus? Why do we get them wet in front of a crowd? Three whys. To publicly appeal to God to save that person through faith in Jesus. To visibly display a person who has been joined to Christ in death, burial, and resurrection. And three, to joyfully celebrate the gospel so that we'll all keep running strong and happy. So I want to pray for you, and you pray for each other and pray for me as we go into a new year, into 2018, that you might look backward or forward to your own baptism so that you would grow strong this year, so that you would overflow with gratitude no matter what this year brings, so that you would have joy, so that you would have hope. And so when you're, re- when you're tempted again to live and to crave like the world does, with Luther, would you remember your baptism? Would you say, declare, I am baptized. That's who I am. I, the promise that God gives is, it's mine. And that's what keeps us on the track. Um, Ray Ortland is... Uh, He's actually going to be the keynote speaker at the Acts 29 conference coming up in February. He, he wrote this. He says, if the Holy Spirit lives within you, your 2018 is not limited to your potential. Your 2018 is enlarged by his power. May your baptism be one of the chief means that the Spirit uses to empower you this year that you might be strong and happy for the glory of the risen Jesus. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that you allow us and enable us to be baptized into Christ Jesus, to be baptized into his death, to be buried with him by baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. As we enter into a new year, may we remember our baptism. May we celebrate the new life that was purchased for us with the body and blood of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.